Hi, this is Dr. Paul White, author of The Vibrant Workplace, and you're listening to My Quest for the Best with Bill Ringle. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringle here, host of My Quest for the Best, the podcast for ambitious small business leaders. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished experts who want to share their knowledge and experiences in order to help you be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating toward more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Joining me today is Paul White. Dr. Paul White is the co-author of three books, including The Five Languages of Appreciation of the Workplace, which has sold over 500,000 copies by business leaders internationally. He wrote the book with Dr. Gary Chapman, author of the number one New York Times bestseller, The Five Love Languages. Based upon their extensive research and expertise, Dr. White and Dr. Chapman developed practical ways for leaders and employees to communicate authentic appreciation that leads to increased employee engagement, lower staff turnover, over and more positive work environment. Dr. Paul White is called upon as an expert resource by journalists ranging from U.S. News and World Report to Business Week, Entrepreneur.com, Fast Company, and many more. He's returning to My Quest for the Best to speak about his book, The Vibrant Workplace, Overcoming the Obstacles to Building a Culture of Appreciation. Welcome, Paul. Thank you, Bill. I'm glad to be with you. It's such a pleasure to be with you again. Tell me, what's a quote that inspires or guides your work? It's actually one that I've had for quite a while, a number of years. It's uh, an ancient proverb, and it says, He who walks with the wise will become wise, but the companion of fools suffers harm. And it just leads me to continue to have a lifelong learning approach and trying to connect with people that I respect and value and learn whatever I can from. I've not heard that before. Do you know the source? It's actually in the book of Proverbs from the Old Testament in the Bible. So it's from the King Solomon. It's attributed to him. Fabulous. I resonate with that because the name of the show is My Quest for the Best. So I'm also looking to connect with those who are wise, learn from their wisdom, and share it widely. I'm sure that people listening to this also find meaning in their lives as well. Is there a decision you've made in the last three months or so that you felt was informed by that message? Yeah. With coming out of COVID and the working from home dynamics that we've had and then businesses restarting, I was looking at what sectors do we still have that really need our resources about appreciation in the workplace and used consultant who does a lot of work in the senior care area of assisted living centers, nursing homes, home health care, and just agreed that it's going to be a, a good direction to continue to target helping those who work and lead in, in senior care service because it's just, it's a brutal area right now. They've just had it really rough and a lot of discouragement, a lot of turnover, tough to find replacements. And so I want to try to really encourage them. No kidding. It's really been the focus of a lot of what's happened during the lockdown. And there's been a lot of focus on the mistakes they've made. So I'm sure it's important to bring some balanced perspective to that, as well as to encourage people to do the right things and to work smart as well as hard in bringing that care to seniors that need it. So we're going to talk about the vibrant workplace. And it seems on its surface, like a very desirable characteristic and attribute to aim for. What would you say are the top characteristics of a vibrant workplace, Paul? As I worked on this book and the related training we've developed really had the image of a very healthy 
either forest or greenhouse, that when you walk into a place like that, there's a sense of life, of energy. You almost get this fresh air with more oxygen. There's growth, but controlled growth. It's not cancerous or weed stuff is going on kudzu and so forth, as well as a sense of cooperation and I guess a lack of conflict and tension. I think a vibrant workplace really is one of those. And if you've ever been able to either work in or with or experience one, you just have the sense of growth, development, a desire for well-being of all parts that is not often the case in a lot of workplaces. It's true that so many people think of a vibrant workplace and will resonate with the image of a forest or a garden that's being productive and harmonious in, in the ways that it contributes and the ecological soundness of it, where all of the growth that's happening helps propel other growth. And I don't think that anyone really wakes up in the morning saying, my gosh, I can't wait to get to work, whether it's online or traveling to an office, and really tamp down morale and detract people from being productive. Most people don't have that intent. <laughs> Yet the aim of creating a vibrant workplace, even though so many people agree with it, the research just shows that this is not what we have as well as our own experiences. Don't bear that out. What makes it so hard to create a vibrant workplace when it's something that so many of us agree is desirable and needed? Great question, Bill. I, I think part of there's multiple reasons, but I, I think as I've observed and thought about it, unfortunately, a lot of our training for business and organizational leaders doesn't get it and doesn't understand what makes a healthy organization. If you think of most MBA programs, you know, necessary points of content, accounting, financial management, organizational development and leadership, but they don't really understand the person side, the people side of things and don't focus on as much. And so it's more about productivity, about how do you increase the top line? How do you decrease expenses? How do you monitor and manage that? And some about what they would call motivation, which really denigrates down to just reward recognition and maybe financial compensation when we know that those aren't really the heart motivators for most people. And that I think the other thing that we've ties in there, we've learned from this past year and a half or so of COVID is that we have customers and clients, we have teammates, we have supervisors, we have people who report to us, we have vendors, and we need to work well interpersonally for the product and the process that we're trying to provide to work well. And we just haven't really focused on that. It's really remarkable how much gets done when that's such a key issue, working well, effectively together, collaborating, cooperating with each other. And it so often gets pushed to the back burner in terms of focusing on it to actually improve those skills. Now, I read in your book that a Boston Consulting Group study of 200,000 global employees surveyed them and asked what was important to them, their happiness and satisfaction at work. And the first reason listed across this very large sample was feeling appreciated at work. And number two was having a good relationship with their supervisor. And just after that, number four was having a good relationship with their colleagues. It's all about that interpersonal relationship, energy, good exchange of feelings and, and experiences and knowledge. It is overlooked. What is it that needs to happen that would shift this? What would be the most significant thing that could shift this given all of the ways that we've had to reset the way that we relate to each other at work? There's an opportunity now, Paul. What would you like to bring to people's attention in terms of thinking that through effectively to really take advantage of this this time? I've put together a, a webinar, a presentation on the major misconceptions of appreciation. And one of is that the goal of appreciation, people believe this, even though it's not true, is mainly to help people feel good or happy. And obviously we would like that. And that's a great secondary sort of result. But 
I describe the goal of appreciation is to help create and maintain an effective, productive workplace. And I use the image of oil in a machine. You can have a machine that's really well built and finely tuned, but the parts have to work together. And without oil, there's friction. It takes more energy. There creates heat. There's sparks. And I think appreciation is the same kind of thing. And so what I, th- I would like to see is to, for people to understand the core element of working together well interpersonally helps the functioning of the overall organization. So it's not just about touchy-feely. We want people to feel good. That's nice. But we want things to go well. And when people feel valued, they're less irritable. They show up. They don't call in sick as much. There's all kinds of research that shows the benefits, but somehow we've missed that. So I'd like us to take a moment and refocus on that because we see from working at home and remote workers that if we don't pay attention to that, some bad things wind up happening. It's so true. And the idea of using appreciation as it's not intended, mistakenly, ignorantly, is something that's really important because people say, oh, I've tried to appreciate people and it didn't work. I told Charlie, way to go. And he still didn't make his goal. Yeah. One of the main things that people don't want to hear, actually, we did a survey, is they don't want to hear good job. And the reason is it's too vague. It's impersonal. It doesn't take any thought at all. And it doesn't mean much. And I've had technical people say, my boss would know if I was doing a good job or not. They manage me, but they don't know the technical side. And so we really encourage people. And that's part of the issue of appreciation. We talk about authentic appreciation, that it really needs to be specific about the person, what they've done, and why it's important. What's an example? Since we all know examples of ineffective ways to communicate, what would be an example of something that someone did well where it was the opposite of being vague and general, but it really honed in on what someone needed to hear because that's what really unlocks the magic? One of the other misconceptions about appreciation is that it's mainly words that we tell people. And I've had a number of leaders say, I don't really need to be told I'm appreciated and I encourage myself. And it turns out to be true. I had one leader whose language of appreciation was time. And he said, I grew up in a subculture where if somebody praised you, the next thing that was coming was an ask. They were setting you up. So he said, wait, here, anybody ask me or praise me? I just put up the defenses and what do they want? But he went and hung out with him. He happened to be a coach. You go to practice and see what's going on there. And he lit up and it was very encouraging to him. The other thing is we worked with a, a mining company in South Dakota, Colorado, Wyoming. And these are your true tough guy kind of jobs. I mean, they're mining and hauling rock and pouring cement and sand and all this kind of stuff. And you would think this appreciation stuff really wouldn't work. Well, one of their leaders brought me in. We talked to the the team of leaders and trained them. And one of the keys for effective appreciation is they need to use the language and actions that are important to the recipient. So for some people, it is time. And it's not necessarily individual time with their manager. It can be hanging out with their friends, having lunch together, going out to work afterwards. The other language, words of affirmation, quality time, acts of service, tangible gifts, and even physical touch. And it was fun to work with this group that they got it. And part of it was that the organizational leadership committed to, first, we want our top leaders to understand this. Secondly, we're going to allow supervisors and directors to volunteer who want to take their teams through this. We started with them, used them as groups, and and then it went viral from there because people would say, how come they get to do this and we don't? And then what 
happened was the uh, the truck drivers and so forth that wear hard hats, they said, hey, we happen to have some visual symbols of each of the languages. We want stickers for our hard hats so people know what it is. And it just went, and now it's part of their onboarding process. After six months, a person has to earn the right to go through taking our online assessment and finding out. And it's just been delightful. And the feedback has been from the engineers that you have, through the tools, changed our culture from this negative, complaining, cynical place to people really enjoy working with one another. They're supportive of each other. And so that's been just a real encouragement. That's exciting to hear about. And what I want to pull out of that is the fact that no matter what our indoctrination has been to the workplace or what our socialization has been growing up, there's very likely misinformation about appreciation. There's a lot of misinformation about praise, both how to give it as well as how to receive it. I know that there's another misconception about communicating appreciation is that it's primarily to increase productivity. And I think of a lot of people who say, I'm I'm trying to motivate people by talking nicely to them. And what is the psychology behind that where you can't use appreciation as a lever to get people to work harder or faster because it's a conditional form of praise? Yeah, that's a great point. It goes back in our mind, employee recognition and authentic appreciation are different. Recognition can be a helpful thing if it's designed and implemented correctly. Most of the time it's not, but nonetheless. But appreciation, one of the differences that we call attention to is that recognition is largely about production. It's about getting things done, about meeting goals and so forth. We believe that employees, team members have value as a person, that we're people, that we're not just production units. And it's important to understand that because people resent being treated like a production unit, that you don't really give a rip about them as a person as long as they get their work done and you don't care what's going on in their life or whatever. And so it really harkens to this issue of people experiencing being appreciated in different ways and that it's not just about production. So for example, there are some characteristics of team members that we value, but doesn't necessarily directly relate to productivity. Personally, I like to work with cheerful people more than grumpy people. And so I can appreciate somebody that's just got a great sense of humor, fun laugh to listen to. And even there are times we know that a sort of production-based recognition and appreciation tends to only focus on the top 10 or 15% in any group. So you have this big middle group in the middle, 50 to 60% of your team members who are good people, they do a solid job, they may not be the stars, but we know research shows that 79% of the people who leave a job voluntarily cite a lack of appreciation as one of the key reasons that they're leaving. And so you put that middle group at risk for losing them and not having any blockers and tacklers in football. You can have star quarterback and receivers, but if you don't have the people to block for them, it's not going to go well. And so we really say that because they don't get recognized for performance, they don't hear anything unless we start to talk about appreciation for them as a person. And it can even be something outside of work. It can be somebody, let's say they're new and still learning their position and growing and so forth, but they're training for a half marathon. You say, man, Mary, that's just cool. You have to self-discipline to, to uh, train for that. I don't have that currently. Or a team member, single parent, and you just see that they are totally committed to their kids. They love them. They're there for them. And there's a guy or a guy. You could say John or Stephanie. It's just so cool to see how committed you are to your kids. Is it about work? No. Is it about them? Yes. Is it going to create a sense of being valued and even a reciprocal loyalty? Absolutely. Sometimes we just focus too much. We need to focus on getting work done, but it needs to include more. So it's an interesting balance. Many people want to be recognized 
recognized by the management team. And yet the most effective ways to communicate and convey appreciation is by the people you're doing the work with. So it could be your peers who see that you had to learn a whole new discipline or software tool in order to make things happen. And it create, like the word you said earlier, culture, a culture of appreciation. So people don't always look to just the top man or the top woman in an organization, because even though it comes from that position, it's not likely to be specific or accurate in a knowledgeable way about each of the dozens or hundreds of people in that organization. Yeah. And this actually touches on another misconception that a lot of leaders have is that communicating appreciation is the sole or prime responsibility of supervisors and managers. That's absolutely not true anymore. There used to be a saying, people don't leave a job, they leave a manager. Maybe then less so now. Younger employees can endure a less than healthy relationship with their manager if they feel supported and have a good relationship with their peers. And they look to that. And so one of the things we've learned is this is not the sole responsibility for a manager, too much responsibility. So we train the whole team of how to communicate appreciation to one another. And I tell, you know, leaders, I say, just because you have a team member who has their language of quality time doesn't mean they want time with you. You may be great, you may be wonderful, but they want to hang out with their friends and watch sports over the weekend. So it's really important to train everybody and, and share the responsibility. Like you were saying, the first person that knows when somebody's discouraged is one of their colleagues. It's not their supervisor. And so be able to communicate that and support them is really important. One of the things I appreciate about you, Paul, is your genuine interest in coming up with new ideas that are helpful to people in exactly the situations they're in, whether it's in a large corporation or whether it's for an organization that has people spread out across the United States or individuals who are working to make better contributions but don't feel connected to their workplace. And I know that over the last year, you've done numerous studies about what's happening with the pandemic lockdown. Can you share some of your research about what you've found? Because here we are now in the summer of 2020. 2020. And we're now having discussions about working together in an office and doing that maybe part of the time and learning to reintegrate with our colleagues and meet people for the first time whom we've maybe been working with for months, but never met face to face. How do we take those things into account based upon your research and what people are expecting and afraid of as we re-enter and reintegrate in the workforce? Yeah, it was interesting, Bill, when COVID hit last spring, we did a pretty quick eight-week research study in April, May, came out in June, and then we did a follow-up in August and September. And one of the first things, we just wondered how people were doing and what their concerns were and so forth, and what they were doing to manage the stress and then repeated that to see if it changed as the time went on. And anxiety was huge for everybody, right? They were worrying about a lot of different kinds of things, but there was also the stress of life, whether that was kids at home from school or your senior parents who are trying to take care of them and you can't see them or loss of income because one of the adults in the family is no longer working or reduced hours. And what one thing we found is interesting, I sometimes say psychologists discover the obvious. We, we found that people who were doing well and managing the stress versus those who were not doing well, that they were putting in place some healthy habits. They were 
limiting how much anxiety producing news they were watching. They kept their healthy sleep patterns. They tried to eat healthy. They exercised a little bit at least. And a key part was that they stay or tried to stay connected with their colleagues and peers. And we know that actually lots of research across different areas, resilience from the military, from other places, that social support is key. And so I get concerned when I hear some of the large corporations and they've actually back started backtrack a little bit about saying, okay, we're all going to work remotely. Maybe, and clearly there's some people that can, but there's also the issue of staying connected and having social support. And it's tougher to do remotely. And so recently I wrote an article in response to Tim Cook's from Apple's statement about, I want everybody back in September. And the reason is because I'm missing them and we need the, the culture. And that's fine, but that he really missed the reason there. The reason we want to back is because we have to go back and we provide businesses providing goods or services that people want or need and are willing to pay for. What's best for our customers? What's best for our clients? And there's both sort of the direct thing of being available or whatever, but there's also the issue of build culture and support over time so that the organization stays healthy. We developed a, a remote training process and also remote versions of our online assessment that allow people to be able to provide support in the way preferred by them, even in a long distance. And we learned three key things that are important to that. One is you have to be proactive because in a remote relationship, you don't walk by their office and stick your head in and say, how are you doing? Or you don't see them in the break room or that kind of thing. So if you're not proactive, you just don't see them. It's just out of sight, out of mind. And so you have to think about that. Secondly, it needs to involve peers that people don't want to just stay connected with their supervisor, but we have to structure some ways for people to stay connected with team members. And whether that's a virtual coffee hour or Friday afternoon beer from home thing that people have done, it's just different things. You've got proactivity, you need to involve the peers. And thirdly, it needs to have some aspect at some point of personal information. Because when we work remotely, it turns to be pretty task oriented. We have a meeting about a budget, about a project, whatever. And you don't have that five minutes before and after where you're hanging out and talking about what you did over the weekend or how your kids are doing in sports. And so it just becomes very production oriented and people feel like a product production unit and they start to resent that and finding out and discovering what's going on in their lives. And there's boundary issues, but I encourage leaders to model it as well, to share by yourself. We were talking earlier, I got to go to the lake house of a friend this weekend, got boating. That was fun. Or what's going on with my kids or grandkids so that it just doesn't turn into an interrogation from a supervisor, manager, or somebody else. So you share some so that it's a back and forth communication. Yeah, that's really important. And I think that appreciation lays a groundwork where people feel more trusted, connected, and valued. Tell me, once you have that in place, what are you hearing about what makes for a good discussion? One of the points and the discussions around re-entering the workforce in a physical sense, one of the ideas that I like to make sure that people are considering is that it doesn't have to be either all remote or all back. There are different ways of doing this and everyone can build a model that makes sense based around the composition of people and what their commitments are. There's some other ideas or questions that people should be asking in order to approach this in a way that is insightful, compassionate, empathetic, based on what you've heard from so many others. Sure. First, one of the things that we found out from our research is one of the main things, by, actually by far the, the main thing that people valued about working remotely was the lack of commute time and how that made it more time for them to either do personal things, exercise or reading or time with family and so forth. And in that, and sometimes some of us forget this, but it's also the time getting ready 
to look presentable at work versus getting ready top up and having sweats on. And so it does take more time. That's And people really value that. And so I think employers need to remember and pay attention to that. But And this is in the article that I wrote this last week, and you can go to our blog at appreciationatwork.com. It's a word ad, but appreciationatwork.com and find the blog. And about the pushback of going back to work, you have to really, I think, approach it from a principle base that we're here to serve our customers and clients. And so we need to be available and be able to provide what that's necessary. And that it not, and one of the things that you hear arguments against it is what's fair. That's not fair. It doesn't really matter what's fair. It's what our customers and clients need. And can we do that? As opposed to just what the employer wants. I think that's the other part. It's not just what my personal preference as the owner or CEO is. It's, yeah, I would like that. And I'm a booner and traditional and all that. But if it doesn't make why somebody has to come five days week. Why force it? And so I think thinking through at a principle base and being able to communicate that to people really helps weed through a lot of the emotionally laden arguments that people get into. I I understand you'd really prefer to work from home. Well, I would prefer to earn $30 million doing my work, even though I'm not an NBA basketball player. Let's deal with reality here. That's important because it takes into account a larger reason making these asks. It's how are we best going to serve our customer and fulfill our business objectives and mission. And I think that one of the things that employees will say is, I think that what we've shown is that it's possible in some cases, not all, but it's possible for, say, a software engineer to be even more productive from home than from working in an office where, as you said, they've cut down on two hours of commute time a day and they just feel better being able to take a you know 15 minute break and watch their kids play or during the summertime or they're to go out and throw the ball for their dog because it allows you to unwind and connect and then come back, refresh the work. I think that people can't settle for just one way of doing things anymore. And how can managers and leaders and employers deal with that wider range of responses now that employees can push back on and have really valid reasons? I think the, the flip side of it is from an employer management point of view is that we know that in fact the SEC recently ruled that public corporations have to document their investments in human capital what are they doing to create a healthy workplace for their employees because we have research that shows organizations companies that have high levels of feeling valued and appreciated are more productive and more profitable than those that don't and so from a, a shareholder point of view it makes sense hey what are you doing to help encourage and support your employees because it's going to help the bottom line and that's the part that I think sometimes gets left out, like with the IT kinds of things. It's not just about productivity, but also the health of the organization. And it takes, I believe, until I've proven wrong, I'm going to hold on to this belief that you have to have some personal and hopefully face-to-face interaction for teams to really develop relationships and be supportive. We were hired by a, a major, one of the big IT social media groups that wanted us to help train a, a totally virtual team learn how to communicate appreciation with one another. And totally virtual in the sense that they had never worked with one another in a face-to-face setting and they hadn't even ever met. And I said, I don't know, we can try, but I don't think it's going to work. And it didn't. It was a failure. And I've come to believe that appreciation about a person, you have to have a personal relationship. You can recognize somebody, their uh, contribution and their work But it feels really weird to try to communicate appreciation for a person you've never met. And it feels weird on the receiving end, the giving end. You usually miss the mark and it doesn't last because it doesn't have the foundation. So I think there needs to be this understanding that even though we can get the task 
done remotely, there's still some aspects of working together that need to require some personal interaction. So I'm so curious as to what you think that element is that becomes present when people shake hands or see eye to eye or sit at a conference room, because there are many companies that are working together and are doing quite well but they may not realize that they're missing something essential by not having that physical gathering. I'm reading some fascinating stuff coming out of neuroscience that shows that we, our brain activity changes just being in the same room and interacting with somebody else than if we don't. And that there's a, a kind of connectivity that happens. There's a kind of level of communication that happens that doesn't, even if you're doing video conferences and so forth. So it's going to be interesting to watch as it comes out, but that we affect each other. We we impact, we influence each other just by our presence. And it's like brainstorming, and you can brainstorm on Zoom, which is a very awkward kind of process, or brainstorming in a room, and there's just this kind of energy and synergy that can happen. So anyway, that's where I'm, I'm headed to see if that continues to be the case. But I just think there is this kind of being together is important. That's great. One last point on this topic, which is I know that there have been a, a plethora of new apps that have launched that have offered counseling at work and people being able to speak or text with someone to help relieve their anxiety. Do you think that they are limited just in their inception based upon the research in neuropsychology that you've come across? I think it's, again, it's a mixed bag, right? It's not like they're totally ineffective. You can teach and help someone learn some tools that help manage their anxiety, whether that's breathing activities or meditation or tracking your thoughts. But I think there is a limit to it. I'm a was trained as a counseling psychologist and we study normal people with normal problems. And one of the things that they found and I think it's been replicated over the years is that one of the key aspects to effective counseling is the relationship with the counselor. Everything else floats away as long as they're not just being damaging and doing stupid things. Whether you use cognitive behavioral work or EMDR or whatever kinds of thing, largely the core is the relationship with the counselor and the therapist feeling understood and feeling like they get Get you and that they actually do and then work towards a solution. So I, I, I don't want to make it an all or nothing pro proposition. I think there can be some value, but I think it'll be limited. Thank you. I think that's really illuminating for people to think about. Now, are you ready for the My Quest for the Best Lightning Round, Paul? Wow, I guess. Hopefully I have some answers here. We'll see. The beginning, you talked about uh, a quote that inspires you from Proverbs about walking with those who are wise. Who's a work colleague who's still with us, who you haven't contacted in more than three months from any chapter of your work life? Who comes to you now? There's a guy named Kurt with whom I worked when I was primarily doing consulting with successful family businesses and wealthy families, who's just a very bright, thoughtful guy about uh, wealth transfer issues and how to make that happen. I haven't talked to him in a while. It'd be good for me to reconnect with him. And when you think of being with Kurt, what part of yourself lightens up or engages just because of the relationship? He's fun. And he's, he's also a great nature kind of guy. He does a lot of duck hunting and other kinds. He lives out Northern California and just brings a, a set of experience that I don't have with certain aspects of nature that I really enjoy and find illuminating, actually. During the pandemic lockdown, what's one professional relationship you formed that's been helpful in letting you get the word out to about your mission? Yeah, so there's a woman named Denise Boudreaux-Scott, who is a, an expert in dealing with senior care centers and people who work in that area. And we've done a couple webinars and podcasts together, and just the insights of 
knowing the different levels. You have one of the problems or challenges of senior care as well as hospitals and medical is that you have people who can work remotely, administrators and IT and so forth. And then you obviously have the direct care providers. And so there's just this inherent difference in that. And as well as educational level, doctors and nurses and occupational therapists down to people who are help provide house care and cleaning and laundry and all that. And just the challenges of being able to meet and help each person enroll feel valuable, even though they contribute different things. What's a book that you've given as a gift in the last year that's not one of your own? I frequently give The Five Love Languages by Dr. Chapman. It's a perennial bestseller. It's, it's a very unique book. It's sold at least 18 million copies the last I saw. It's in 50 languages, five zero, And it's been on the New York Times bestseller list for at least 10 years every week. And it's grown in sales every year for 25 years. And it's just a great foundational book for personal relationships, family, cup with kids, of understanding that we all feel loved in different ways and we express love in different ways. And it works best when we express love in the way that's meaningful to the recipient rather than what's meaningful to us. And so it's a tremendous. And do you know through your contact with Dr. Chapman, whether the demand has increased during the pandemic lockdown? Is something that is it resource that people have sought out more of, or is it still something that people are discovering just on a regular basis? Yeah, I don't know the impact of the pandemic. I'll have to check into that. I'll have to check with my friends at the publishers. Okay. From your own experience consulting and leading workshops with different companies, what's your definition of workplace success for leaders? Workplace success for leaders, I think, is comprised of providing valued goods or services that people want or need versus creating a need or putting something out there that's schlock. So value goods and services at a, at a reasonable or at least yeah, a reasonable price and that you're, but you're able to make enough money to support your employees and their lifestyles and that it's not, you're not working at a pace that's really damaging to you or your employees. There has to be, I don't really like the term, but a work-life balance that it's this is enough. We don't have to just keep pushing the limits and making more and more or whatever. It's I have decent family relationships. I have time and energy to take care of myself physically, have some leisure time. So having a healthy life in the midst of maintaining a, a profitable business that serves others. And what would you say that you observe a couple of the traits or characteristics that you observe in a workplace that has strong, effective leadership? Yeah. So that's pretty easy, actually. One is that the leaders have a learning attitude themselves, that they don't feel like they've got it all learned. They know everything. They're willing to learn both from those who work for them as well as from others. And that there's a sense of humility that whatever success I or we experience is solely based on me. That there's, I've worked with mega wealthy people are worth 500 million to billion dollars. And what core characteristics of the people who get it is they realize it's not all about me. I was in the right place at the right time. Yeah, I worked hard. Yeah, I brought some things to the table. I was just fortunate or blessed, however you want to say it, that circumstances pulled together and I was able to take a hold of the opportunity. So I think humility is a key part and obviously honesty and integrity. It's just that if you can't trust somebody in a business relationship, you're not going to do business with them. And so serving the customers, making sure that you are honest and if there's a mistake, you fix it. If you do those things, you're going to be okay. One of the issues that goes under the category of it's lonely at the top is that many well-intentioned managers and business leaders are very much focused on how to serve their teams 
and how to serve their customers. And they often get overlooked. And I'm sure you've encountered the same as I have, that they're often so hungry for this, but they're not aware that this is a need to receive that appreciation from their colleagues, from their coworkers, even from their customers. What do you say to people who find themselves in that situation where they think it's important for others, but they don't think of it as being an important or need of their own? Yeah. I've worked with a lot of leaders who have the tension, and it's understandable, about not wanting to get hoodwinked, about somebody sort of brown nosing them and trying to manipulate benefits from being appreciative or whatever. I tell leaders, first of all, it's best to model this and to be, if somebody does something for you, whether it's words or otherwise, it's nice to say thanks. You're more likely to see that. And that in some ways, you don't have to worry about being hoodwinked as long as you respond moderately. The proof will come out over time. Most of us are not, we may get snookered once. We're not idiots. And so we're, we're going to see things. And so just trust the process. Be open to a certain degree. You know, you don't have to be just a, a total open book, but allow people to express their gratitude. Because for leaders, I remember my father was a businessman. And he felt a great responsibility to provide jobs for those that worked for him. And they were truly grateful. A lot of them were maybe high school dropouts or graduates that was tough to find another kind of job. And to have steady work at an income that they could live on was important and they valued and appreciated. And it's important to be able to have a response if people who are uncomfortable with receiving that appreciation or they don't want to feel like they're giving away too much by saying, oh, thank you. Thank you so much. It's very easy to simply thanks so much for your comments. What are some other responses you could give people so they just have this language or this response as something that they can offer that makes the appreciation acknowledged. Yeah, I think obviously thanks, but I appreciate you sharing that, assuming that it's true, or it's encouraging to hear how what we're doing is helpful to you. So it's just those sort of just a, a little self-reflection of thanks. My, my language is words. And so that's encouraging to me, or I'm glad that you're with us and that it works well for both of us. Just simple things like that. One thing that I'd like to offer, I don't know if you've heard it before, but I offer it to leaders, if they're hearing appreciation that they think is accurate, they could simply respond, you're so perceptive. Thanks mm. for sharing. <laughs> nice. Yeah, you're right. Paul, you've been so generous in sharing. The time has gone quickly. I just want to acknowledge your contributions on my quest for the best today, talking about a vibrant workplace in being able to help people understand that we encounter obstacles to giving and receiving appreciation at work. That it's important to understand the five different ways that people do share appreciation and receive appreciation effectively from the words that they use, from acts of service, from spending time together, from physical gifts, as well as touch. Making sure that we understand that we can give and receive appreciation from ways that are simple verbal exchanges, and to remember that it's important to do among all the people in our organization, not just expecting it from the top. And it could also be as elaborate as the mining company you talked about, who actually wore stickers on their hats, talking about what their primary language of appreciation was, and how they want to be appreciated for their contributions. Paul, I want to thank you for joining me on my quest for the best today. You bet, Bill. Thanks for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. Paul, before we say goodbye for now, where can people find out more about you and your work online? So our sort of mothership website is appreciationatwork.com. And it's a word at, but appreciationatwork.com. 
has information about the five languages of appreciation, the vibrant workplace. We actually have done work with toxic workplaces and both the book, this online assessment, and then training material. So we will point to that in the show notes so that people listening can find appreciation at work.com simply by clicking in the show notes. We'll also link to your books on Amazon as well as your social media to make it super easy for people to find out more about what you're doing and how they can continue to learn from you. Dr. Paul White, author of The Vibrant Workplace. I want to thank you again for joining me on my quest for the best. You bet. You're welcome. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on my quest for the best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback, and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review my quest for the best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on my quest for the best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.